Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We've got a great guest all the way from Lansford, North Dakota. Welcome to the show, Andrew Abernathy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. Now, Andrew, you've been at this business since you were a young kid. Not the typical story. Maybe give a little bit of your backstory for those who don't know you and how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah. So, you know, started out in a family farm in Lancer, North Dakota, and, you know, saved $4,000 up from running grain cart and doing the normal farm boy stuff. Fast forward, you know, we raised my first investment dollars around 16 years old. And uh, now I'm 27 and raised about 50 million to date. We have over 100 million in assets and we focus on class A self-storage development and we own the process from the dirt to the finished product. I love that. And I love development. Self-storage is one of those asset classes that's attracted a ton of investment. It's attracted money from REITs and all kinds of sophisticated investors. And in a lot of markets, frankly, it's overbuilt. It's saturated. Mm -hmm. How have you strategized the market so that you go and thread the needle in those places where there's still demand? Yeah, good question. So self-storage is unique. You know, uh, for hotels, you know, you may drive a few extra miles to a Marriott to stay at, but in storage, nobody drives more than three, three miles from their home for storage anymore. So if you paint a big brush over a city, most of them are saturated, but we do our best to find localized three mile, maybe even two mile radius regions that we can come in at that need more supply that are landlocked. So we know other competitors won't come in after us. And that's worked pretty well for us. Fascinating. And what makes development more attractive than say acquiring some of the tired mom and pop operations that have been perhaps undermanaged or mismanaged over a period of time? I think they're both great business models. Our issue is scalability. So we're at about doing about 30 to 50 million a year in development of our of our own self-storage facilities. And in the next 10 years, I'd like to get us up to 200 million a year in development. And that's just not, from the math I've done, I don't think it's realistic to have the scalability in that dollar amount in the MONPA operations. But I think it's a good business model for less capital if you need to put less capital to work. Absolutely. And of course, when you talk about self-storage, there's so many different little niches within that business. There's multiple revenue streams. There are opportunities to sell additional products, whether it's boxes and tape, hangers, everything to do with storage. And you see the full spectrum. How do you approach that business? Yeah. So we uh, brand ours with extra space storage and or public storage. So we build them, we own them and then they come in and manage them. So they take care of all the marketing and all the sales of that sort. We just pay a small fee for them, use their name, and then we get reimbursed that. So they have the algorithms and the techniques that they've been working on since the mid seventies when they started. So I can't talk too much about that, but they, uh, they seem to do quite well at it with our facilities. So it's almost like they're a tenant in your, in the facilities that you build. Correct. Yeah. They come in and they, uh, they'll do the whole management process for about 6% of revenues and we get to use their name and everything yeah, similar. So Marriott, they charge 12% and you still have to run it yourself. So it was just a no brainer for us to go with uh, the main brands right now, roughly five to 6% of the U S storage facilities are on the REITs, the extra space public and the other 94%, 95% mon pa. So I look at that as an opportunity. I think the market in the next 30, 40, 50 years will become less fragmented and more controlled by the main names. 
And I'm not saying the main names will own them. There'll be individuals like us that work with them that own them, that they just manage similar to the hotel industry, how it evolved from the eighties to today. So that's a very interesting twist on it because a lot of people think that if they're getting into the storage business, that not only do they have to make the investment, they also need to operate and they typically go together. Those are not typically separated. How did you stumble across that? About five years ago, Extra Space Storage started doing the branding and the management to get their name on buildings that they didn't own themselves. And it was the first time that I recognized anyways in the business that it happened. And Public Storage, Life Storage, CubeSmart, they all they all followed not, not long after. So now it's a common practice. And it's similar to hotels. I always go back to that because I, I think history um, rhymes. It doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And in the 80s, you know, hotels were fragmented too. Bob's Hotel, Jeff's Hotel. And then all of a sudden nowadays, all you see is Marriott's, Hilton's, you know, Four Points. So I just think the storage industry is just, you know, 30, 40 years behind, behind hotels. Well, let's talk a little bit about granularity. So self-storage is typically focused on the residential customer, the folks that maybe have downsized and now they need a place for, for their extra stuff, or maybe they're just hoarders and they don't know how to get rid of stuff or, you know, whatever, whatever their reason is, but there's also needs for businesses. For example, lawyers that have to keep files forever or doctors and healthcare professionals that need secure file storage, things like that. How does the business segment between the residential client, the business client, and perhaps even some commercial clients? Yeah. So that varies. We kind of customize ours to each three mile radius area. But another interesting one of ours that's growing is Amazon. So we put Amazon lockers in all of our lobbies. If you walking up and down our hallways, you'll see people in there, you know, all their inventory and they're boxing stuff up, shipping them out. So, you know, Amazon's basically just a virtual mall and all their mall tenants are in our facility, boxing their stuff up and shipping it out. So we, we really like seeing that. We really try to cater towards those clients, but a lot of them are business or a lot of them are homeowners at this point. So I don't know the exact split. I know it. It's just, it's varies from facility to facility. It's pretty interesting. So to put a little more precision on that, just to make sure I understand and our listeners understand it, what you're saying is some of the smaller marketplace sellers are serving their inventory out of a self-storage facility. It's getting picked up by Amazon at your front door and then shipped to the end customer. Correct. Fascinating. And so what are the requirements then for that Amazon locker, for Amazon to actually view your facility as a potential pickup point for for a warehouse, really? Yeah, I think those all vary. I don't know what their algorithm is. We've been pretty fortunate so far. Our plan B, though, if if the algorithm doesn't work for them, maybe there's one too close already, we would just build a center for that. And you can just have FedEx and basically a shipping area right out of your right out of your lobby. So we we get creative you know, cause the Amazon lockers are just for Amazon. So actually we don't mind sometimes building it out where it's our own, where then you can have FedEx, UPS, Amazon, and anybody come and pick up points there too. So kind of almost blurring the line between e-commerce warehousing and self-storage. Correct. Yeah. We, we kind of feel like we try to be a, and we're all well lit. We have security. Um, our facilities are, they look more like a hotel than storage. You know, each, each site's about $12 million our cost. Well, We've, we have vertical integration. So our, our competitors pay about 12, you know, we build them for about 11. And then once they're stabilized, they're worth anywhere from 18 to 20 million. So they're about a hundred thousand square feet 
each facility. That's fairly sizable. And these are your traditional reinforced con- steel reinforced concrete structures, not your sheet metal buildings. Yep. And everyone's different. You know, when we go into different cities, they require different facade tones and textures, but they're all very beautiful in their own ways. I love that. Love that. So as the market is becoming saturated, you're basically looking to fill in the holes in the Swiss cheese uh, in, in a lot of the markets that you're playing in. What draws you to a market as opposed to saying, well, this market's done, I'm, I'm going to move on? Yeah, good question. So we have a pretty simple five-step criteria. So we need 100,000 people in a three-mile radius. We need 100,000 household income in a three-mile radius. We need to be on and visible from a main thoroughfare with uh, 50,000, 60,000 vehicles a day or more. We need to achieve $1.70 a foot in rental rates or more. And we need to be landlocked. You know, we don't want to build something where a competitor can build right next to us a year or two later when they see we're successful. And the nice thing about humans is we always move. 10 years ago, the hot neighbor is not hot anymore, which we like. So right now there's 333 million people in the U.S., and 83% live in major cities. And in 2050, their projection is 404 million people in the US and 89% are supposed to live in major cities. So that's about an 85 million people spread in the major cities and an average six square feet per person, which is the average currently for storage needs. That's a half a billion square feet needed of extra facilities in the major cities, not including redoing facilities that are, that are aged at the time. That's fascinating. And there's a lot of debate right now whether those population targets will be met because certainly declining birth rates Correct. mean that we're you know, demographically not going to achieve it. So if it is achieved, it's going to be through immigration. Correct. And that hasn't happened yet. Whether those trends will continue or not, who knows? Yep. I know that, for example, here in Canada where I live, you know, they're talking about 350,000 new immigrants a year, which is a big number compared to historic numbers especially on a population basis, that's a big number. So when you consider our population is about one-tenth of the U.S., that would be the equivalent of three and a half million people entering the U.S. on an annual basis, and the U.S. is nowhere near that. So, you know, we're talking big immigration numbers if, if those numbers are going to be achieved. Correct. Yeah, and COVID also probably put a little slowdown in it because people, you know, left the cities to more rural areas. Time will tell, but for example, I, I grew up in a rural area, North Dakota, if a guy from New York says, I'm going to go live in Lansford, you know, for a year, he might think it's pretty fun. But if you're used to New York, I, I just don't see someone changing their lifestyle that much personally. But again, we pivot. I think businesses pivot, right? Coca-Cola only sold pop until, or soda, however, whatever you call it, until, uh, you know, a decade or so ago or two, 20 years ago. And then the health kick hit. And now they are buying up a bunch of vitamin water, you know, healthier consumptions. You know, we'll pivot just like any business. Uh, that, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? I'd love that. AndrewAbernathy.com, personal site, and then AbernathyHoldings.com for the business. And I'd love to chat if you have any questions. Well, fantastic. We'll put that because the spelling isn't obvious. We'll put that in the show notes. I'd appreciate that. I was about to say that. Yeah. Don't forget the silent E. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Andrew, thank you for the perspective. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Andrew Abernathy at his personal website. The link is in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>